Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone, and every week we explore all things wine with you. Find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hi, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim, and every week we scour the internet to find interesting articles about wine and trends in the wine industry and bring those interesting topics to you. How are you doing this week, Mark? I'm great, Kim. How are you? I'm pretty well, thank you. So what interesting things did you Google this week when it came to wine? Well, Kim, I was Googling cork information, and wow. I know we had a discussion. It's either Diam or DM corks. I've heard it different ways, but I had a salesperson tell me they have customers that will only buy wines that are packaged with this cork. Are you familiar with the cork? I've heard it in the industry. I've read a few articles about this, uh, this cork. So they, a manufacturer extracts all volatile compounds from a cork, so it prevents any possibility of a bacteria growing on it. They actually rate them for years, 5, 10s, 20s, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. But um, new cork technology, I just thought it was interesting. Someone would not buy with natural cork unless it had this cork. So, so is this a specially constructed cork, or is this just a way of treating the cork after it's been stamped out of the bark from the tree. My understanding is they crush natural cork and then they do things to it to extract all the bad stuff from that cork. So to clean it then, pretty much? Yeah, clean it, cleanse it, okay. and then reconstruct it again as a cork. Interesting. So new new cork technology. Yeah. What about you, Kim? What did you Google this week? I Googled, I tried to dive a little bit deeper into an article that we read about cava and this new certification for sparkling wine in Spain that sort of has everybody up in arms. So I wanted to do a little bit more research into sparkling wine of Spain since I am doing some stuff studying for Spanish wines at the moment. Uh, my brain is sort of packed with Spain and Spanish wine information. And since I love bubbly, I wanted to know a little bit more about their unique style of sparkling wine. Yeah, an interesting subject. And I think it is something on our list to describe to our listeners that's coming up. So I believe that's so. great. So we're going to talk way about, up on me now. We're going to talk about Spanish bubbles. So the first topic that we are going to discuss with you today is the role of sugar in wine. And this can be a topic that is a little confusing for consumers because there can be varying levels of sugar in your wine, but then there are also other things in wine that either mask the flavor or the feel of the sugar, or there are flavors that make you think that a wine is sweet when in fact it's not. So sort of a complex issue, and we're going to try to break it down for you a little bit today. Yeah, interesting. Couldn't be geeky, but I think we'll try to make it fun for our listeners yeah. to understand sugar and wine. And this always goes back, Kim, to the thing you always taught me was the opposite of a dry wine is not wet, not it's wet, sweet. It's sweet. So that has to do with sugar. So right. let's talk to our listeners about sugar and wine. The American palate seems to be going, I feel, has a more of a sweet palate, so more looking for sugar or sweet wines. Right. And I don't think that this is a new thing. 
thing. You know, if we look at how tasting perceptions have changed over the last few decades or how people's favorite wines have sort of evolved and changed, I feel like we're actually drinking far less sweet wine these days than people did in, say, the 1950s, 1960s, and that our palate is drying a bit. But I like to look at certain wines that have a significant level of sweetness as more starter wines. Like, all right, if you're not a regular wine drinker, it makes more sense, I think, for your palate if you're comfortable with wines that might have a little bit of residual sugar in there because they make them taste more pleasant, honestly. You know, I use the I use the analogy that it's like drinking coffee. If you've never drunk coffee before, you're not going to jump right into Italian espresso. You're going to start with that regular Dunkin' Donuts coffee that yeah. has you know, lots of sugar and lots of cream and then kind of work your way into the darker coffees or the richer brews or, you know, something without any cream and without any sugar. And I feel like it's the same for wine, starting with a wine that is big and fruity or light and fruity um, and maybe has a little touch of sweetness to it is a great way to get you introduced to the category. I'm glad you started with perception of sweetness because everybody is different. You, you What you think is sweet, I may think is dry. Right. And I think that's the hard thing in the industry is if someone says, I drink this and I think it's sweet and you're like, oh my God, I don't get any sweetness mm-hmm. on that. Right. So everybody's palate is different. So let's discuss, Kim, with our listeners, what makes, what are some of the things that makes wine sweet or gives it sweetness? So first off would be actual fruit sugars that are left in the wine during production. So obviously wine is made from grape juice and that grape juice has a lot of sugar in it just like any other kind of fruit juice. And as fermentation happens, the yeasts within the liquid start to eat the sugars and turn that sugar into alcohol, carbon dioxide, and some heat. What happens is that there are more complex sugars in wine other than just fructose, fructose, Fructose. glucose, (laughs) um, and glucose and fructose together combine to make sucrose. So as wine, as different sugars are broken down in wine, the yeast can eat certain of them, but the yeast can't eat others. So there are always going to be little small amounts of certain types of sugars left in your wine. But you may not have the ability to perceive all that sweetness. And like like you just said, Mark, you know, different people have different thresholds of being able to taste sweetness or to taste a lack of, of sugar in there. So there's always a little bit of sugar remaining in your wine. Whether you can taste it or not is a different matter. And even professionals sort of get into, not arguments, but always lively debate about what counts as a wine with sweetness. And can you perceive it versus, okay, this is what a chemical analysis in a lab is telling us about how much sugar there is left in this wine. So the fruit sugars, when ferments, turns into alcohol. We talked about this in the past. We talked about warmer climates tend to have more sugar develop in the grapes, so at least a higher alcohol. And you touched on something, Kim, that a lot of times annoys me when I see manufacturers or wineries saying there is no sugar in this wine. Right? I knew it you were going to bring this up. Yeah, it seems to be a new <laughs> thing lately, and it, it annoys me because you, and you'll hear terms where a wine, they'll say it's fermented to dryness, but there's still always some amount of residual sugar. And I've questioned manufacturers on this before when they say there's no sugar, which it is. And there's a technicality in the wine making world where the scale to measure the sugar goes like a negative to a plus. So it's measurable, but mm-hmm. they, because it's not a positive number, say, they, they say it's not detectable, which yeah. 
it's a gripe of mine. Yeah, I know. And these are, we're sort of talking about, there are these sort of quote unquote diet wines out there that will advertise that they have no sugar and no carbs and, you know, you can drink them and be more healthy. My gripe with those kinds of wines isn't so much that they're sort of fibbing about the sugar, but that in order to get a wine where they can get close to saying we have no sugar, I feel like there's a lot more manipulation going on of the wine and that it's not people sort of have this romantic image of wine being made in big barrels and it just sort of happens naturally. But some wines are very manipulated by the winemakers in order to get them to be the way that they think that they should be. So, so manipulated, manipulated you're saying they add additives, something, some either, form of Either put sugar. additives in there or they're doing something to the wine to remove any other traces of sugar. And I feel like if you're stripping wine of one thing, you're going to end up stripping it of other things as well, whether that's aroma or flavor or personality or some sort of uniqueness. It could so. be more juice or something. But there, mm. I mean, there are countries that ban added sugar. Right. So that's something if you're you're interested in, you could look at see what, what countries ban it. And the measurement, if you want to check, you know, the geeky tech sheets on wine, it's called residual sugar. What is left over after fermentation? They'll always give that, well, a good winemaker will give that number. What's the percent of residual sugar left? And you can kind of get a sweetness scale from that. And a lot of the Rieslings recently use a, a sugar scale kind of to tell you if it's dry or it's sweet. Yeah, that's I all love based that, on that. that Washington state producers have gotten into the habit of doing this. I mean, they sort of all came together and developed this idea of putting a scale on the back labels of their bottles of Riesling because consumers are confused and you might like to drink Riesling but know that you don't like it really sweet. So how do you know when you pick up a bottle if it's going to have some sweetness to it or if it's going to be on the drier end of the scale? So now there are a lot of Rieslings from the West Coast of the U.S. that if you turn the bottle over and look at the back of it, it'll have a sliding scale and it will say dry or off dry or lightly sweet or medium sweet or dessert sweet. So you can kind of get a good idea of, hey, this style of Riesling is what I'm looking for. So I absolutely love that they've started to do that. And I think that helps the consumer immensely. So let's talk, Kim, what, what else makes a wine sweet? They talked about oak makes a wine sweet or gives sweetness. This was fascinating to me. I had no idea about this little gem of information that they provided us with here. So we've kind of always known that oak does impart other things to the flavor of the wine, whether it's that oaky, woody taste or those spicy notes or that vanilla. But then they also said that oak imparts sweetness. And the first thing that they mentioned was something that I talk about all the time when it comes to perceiving sweetness is that, all right, so say an oak barrel is giving a wine a flavor or an aroma of vanilla. Vanilla for us conjures up dessert. So therefore, in our brains, the idea and the smell and the flavor of vanilla is inexplicably tied to sweetness because dishes that we have vanilla in tend to also be be pretty sweet. So there's that sort of psychological connection between the two of them. But then they also said that there are actual compounds in oak that tell our palate that it is sweet without it having any sugar. And they likened it to stevia, the plant stevia that is used as a sugar supplement that doesn't have any calories and is very noticeably sweet, but without actually being a sugar. And oak has one of these compounds as well. And I did not know that. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with when they char or toast the barrel, it activates 
actually sugars that are in the the oak mm-hmm. and you see this a lot or hear this a lot in the in the bourbon and the whiskey industry and the, the, probably the comparison and that would be like jack daniels uses a charred oak and it has mm-hmm. a little bit more sweetness yeah as a bourbon it's just like cooking like if you have an onion versus you have a caramelized onion the only thing that you've done is add heat and you've cooked that onion but you get those sweet notes instead of just having a raw onion so it's kind of the same thing when you're toasting a barrel it's like you're caramelizing the sugars on the inside of that barrel. So what about, Kim, the last item they mentioned gives it sweetness, the alcohol viscosity. What was your take on that? Because I'm thinking, yeah, when I heard I'm like, yeah, because there's a thick, you see a thick viscosity, you're thinking a port or a dessert wine. It's sweet. This goes back to my sort of flavors versus textures thing, where the feel of it in your mouth certainly can lead to you perceiving it in a different way. You know, if you have a rich wine and a textured wine and it feels big and mouth coating, as opposed to something that's light and crisp and makes your mouth water, but doesn't necessarily stick around in there, you're going to perceive that other bigger one as a little bit sweeter for whatever reason. And alcohol does have some sweetness to it, along with the heat of the alcohol. And I love just that whole idea of viscosity as presenting some sweetness for people because it's a texture. Yeah. And viscosity, we talked about this in the past, is the legs. You hear tears on the side of the glass. Mm -hmm. It's that stuff that's kind of sticking and hanging. It gives you the syrupy kind of thing of of a wine. And let's talk to our listeners, Kim. When you say a wine is sweet or you're trying to find out just from a label, what are some things, I know we talked about this when we, we talked about white Zinfandel. What are some tips how you can just tell right away there's a sweetness level to this wine? I know you're the bubbly queen, so you know a lot of tips with that as far as sweetness. Right. So there are certain terms that winemakers will put on the label to give you an indication of if it is sweet or not sweet. And in the realm of sparkling wine, there are very strict terms that will be used depending on the final amount of sweetness and sugar that are left in the wine. So if you like dry sparkling wines, the word brute is what you should be looking for. There's also a category that is like the driest of the dry, which is called called Brut Nature um, or Brut Natural or Brut Nature. Those are super duper dry. So no noticeable sugar in those guys at all. And basically um, no added sugar. Right, no added sugar. So sparkling wine is a little more complicated because there are a number of different steps. And one of those steps is to add a little bit of extra sugar to either balance it out or to create a final style. But if you like dry sparkling wine, you're safest with Brut. The next most popular style is extra dry, which sort of counterintuitively is not more dry than Brut but it's a little bit less dry than Brut. So it does have a little touch more sweetness to it. So extra dry is kind of that more approachable, slightly sweeter. Although if you are not used to drinking dry wines and you are more used to drinking slightly sweeter wines, it'll probably still taste pretty dry to you. Um, And a lot of Prosecco is labeled extra dry, although there is some Brut Prosecco out there. And then the final style, which is sweet and is a little bit more expensive and a little harder to come by, is called Demi-Sec, at least for Champagne. There are other other things like Asti Spamanti, which is always going to be sweet. Uh, Moscato di Asti, which I don't think I've ever had a dry Moscato di Asti. Have no, you? no, those, those are all going to be sweet. Yeah. yeah. So that's so that's for sparkling wine. Any any tips and tricks for uh, still wines that well, you've we, seen on labels? We talked about when they say blush. Uh, I've seen a, a lot trending now, just saying sweet, outright sweet. You see that's late helpful. harvest. <laughs> yeah. You I mean you see late, yeah, late harvest, harvest is a good or one. Dessert. If they say dessert yep. wine, semi sweet, sugar in there, off dry is also a term that I don't see on labels too often, but that we do use and that shows up in tasting notes. So if you see the term off dry, that means a little bit sweet. And uh, in, in German, there are um, there are terms as well, if we wanted to get into German. 
No. Okay, no. we're going to stay away from German. So sweetness, I think, I mean, a lot of users or drinkers of wine, they know their style. So we can pretty much tell if someone says, this is what I'm drinking, what their sweetness level is, I feel. I mean, we talked about white Zinfandel. To me, if someone says they're drinking white Zinfandel, they have a sweet palate, right? And if they want to Riesling, we have the scale on the back to help pick where they are. Just from their style, we can we can tell, right? I mean, there's a few indicators right. we have to use. And there's so much wine out there. You know, it's it's good to experiment with styles that you might not think you'd like right now, but you could develop into. But there's enough good wine out there in the world that drinking what you like is it's one of those little pleasures of life. And there are lots of uh, lots of good wines out there in all sorts of sweetness levels. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. If you'd like to follow our show, find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We'd love your questions and comments. Next again, Kim, a topic of climate change in the wine world. And this was in two different publications about unusual solutions that winemakers are using using for climate change or looking at to adapt to climate change. One of those was more blending because maybe one vintage, they had a bad crop or a bad harvest. So they have to use some reserve from maybe the previous year and blend more to yeah. get product out. I thought this blending concept was interesting because when we talk about blends, we usually talk about blends of different grape varieties. We very rarely talk about blending wines from different vintages unless we're talking about champagne. So this is, you know, there might be a little bit of another vintage that's been held back and say you have a little bit of 2016 that you're going to add to your 2017 to kind of round out edges or or do whatever. But it's not something that we hear a lot or talk about a lot um, about vintage vintage blending. And so I thought that this was interesting that this was, this was brought up. And it's interesting that this wouldn't have even been something that could be talked about. 50 years ago because we didn't necessarily have the technology to keep fresh wine from a previous vintage that that hadn't been bottled and was still in a stainless steel tank not having any exposure to oxygen and that they could actually keep that wine for any significant amount of time without it losing its freshness so I thought that this was um, a fascinating thing to, to add to the discussion yeah and a lot of winemakers if they have a vintage year on the bottle there is a government allowed percentage like you said Kim you can use from previous it's very is it like small like 5% yeah. Yeah, it's something. very small. So what you're seeing lately is you pick up a wine, you, you know, says no vintage. It's just a non-vintage wine. So that opens up the book that, you know, what is in there? Right. How many vintages are in there? You have you have no idea. It could be three years old. It could be four years right. old. You don't know. So I see a trend where people are getting away, maybe the bigger bulk stuff, they're not putting vintage. And if you, if you look at the big brands, the big bulk producers... You won't find a vintage on there, but doesn't it doesn't say no vintage anymore? Just there's nothing. Yeah. So are they doing this both for quality and then also for quantity? Like maybe one one vintage you have a lot of wine that's decent quality, and the next vintage you just don't have a lot of quantity. I th- I think to me it's always the question I I look at because 
it's it's always the same no matter what they're doing for the blend so i think it's just they want to make a consistent product and they're just blending what they can to make that wine okay. consistent from all over the world so but you won't see a vintage because they can't not blend less than 10 percent or mm-hmm. less than five percent has to be way more to get the the quality they want or the quantity i, I would assume yeah so next kim they talked about our old friends at uc davis they're always experimenting one of the things was uh putting out wines that are, i would say sustainable they won't have electricity being used maybe no water they're saying no soil adapting to things where they can produce a product and we looked at this a long time ago about synthetic products Mm -hmm. actually using no grapes just alcohol and so they're looking what happens if we lose the agricultural product it's like something it's like something out of star trek you know you're replicating your wine you just you know it's it's a lab created product that's not made from grape juice but it's put together from water and alcohols and flavors and that's crazy and the first time i heard about synthetic liquor making or wine making i always hear that example of vanilla with the vanilla bean that 90% of all the vanilla on the shelves isn't made from an actual vanilla bean. It's synthetic. And I was thinking, okay, well, it's acceptable in the food world. So I can see this happening down the road in the in the wine industry. Scary though. Mm. Let's talk about, once again, the latitude of the wine growing is changing. Right. So wine regions are, you know, some are coming into play that had never been appropriate for grape growing before because either their weather wasn't very good or they didn't have enough warmth in the summertime or their winters were just too cold. And then there are other ones that are just frankly getting too hot and uh, grapevines are being overstressed and just can't survive there anymore. So now we're starting to see grape growing regions in southern England, in the Netherlands, in regions of India and China, more to the north. So interesting new places that are starting to produce wine that we never would have thought of 10, 20 years ago, but now are starting to produce some wines. And then there will be other ones that are eventually going to be too warm. And it's not just the difference between it's too hot in the summer times. It's more that there are fluctuating weather patterns that are going on. So a lot of grape grape growers and also scientists who work to develop new varieties of grapes for winemaking are paying attention to water. And water is, is a big big issue because there are some places that are getting too much water in the spring. So you might have a really dry summer, but too wet in the spring or too wet in the fall and how your grapevines need to adapt to those changing weather systems as well. And we were talking about the the growing regions. I think the first thing that stuck out to me on this was looking at California, Oregon, Washington. Oregon and Washington lately, the wine popularity has been crazy because the climate is shifting up there and it's getting much better to grow certain things. Mm -hmm. And then you see Canada now, British Columbia, they're growing great wines. They could never compete with California or Oregon or Washington. The other day I was meeting with uh, an Oregon winemaker and he was really stressing how he notices the climate change is affecting the lower altitude vines. So they're picking more from a higher altitude Mm -hmm. to adapt to the climate. It's too hot now in the lower altitude. So they're taking more fruit from their hillside vineyards. So it's a real thing. And I know we stressed this before the concern in the wine world, but everything is shifting. So you're seeing these other places now that there you probably never saw wines from before. Right. And you talked about water, Kim, and I think they, they had touched on in Portugal, the Douro River Valley, and they have a tradition of no irrigation.
regulation allowed. So there are areas where they have to adapt their laws right. to climate change. And that's when like the human element really comes into it too, especially for well-established wine-growing regions that have set into law all of their winemaking techniques and you know what grapes you can grow and can you water, can you not water, and when are you picking and how much... You know, how much volume per acre of of vineyard area can you produce? And sometimes it's harder to change those things than it is to adapt scientifically because people are can be very traditional and set in their ways. And they're like, no, this is that we do these things here for a reason, for the quality of our wine, for the traditions of our wine, and we don't want to change it. But sometimes you you, you got to adapt. So that 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 human unwillingness to change, uh, I. Think think is is a, a big factor that is going to come into play when it comes to maybe changes that are needed to different wine growing areas in order for them to survive. Yeah, and you have to visualize these people in Portugal, the steep, steep slopes. Right. You can't like, just how go do up you there. Yeah. That? That's what I was thinking. You can't just call a sprinkler guy. In there, <laughs> but you're not getting pipe up there. You're not going to be able to feed the water yeah. up there. So this is a major no. concern. And that's But they're looking at it now. They're thinking, okay, down the road, what happens? What are we going to do? So we'll keep everybody updated. Yeah. And one thing that I always find is interesting when we talk about these reactions to climate change and what are we as an industry doing to adapt, that there's stuff that winemakers decide to do and then there's how is the market going to accept it. And you not only have to change how you're making your wine, but also can we still sell that wine? Will people still buy that wine? And there was a small mention in here about changes to packaging. Or will we always have cork trees? Glass is really heavy, you know we traditionally bottle in glass bottles, but that might be something that kind of goes by the wayside because it's really expensive and takes up a lot of fuel to ship glass bottles because they are so heavy. So not only does technology need to change and keep up and adapt, but people's mindsets do as well. Yeah. And you talk with our listeners and we get questions all the time of, you know, what's the impact? And if people just want to see what's happening, it's in the news every day, like in Champagne and Burgundy, they're having these frogs or these hails that they haven't ever seen. So the climate is just getting crazy out there and it's in the news. So we right. know it's happening um, and it's sad. And the it wine really industry is. really is sort of a canary in the coal mine when it comes to climate change. So wine growers, especially those who have been doing it for generations, they have the data and they've seen the changes and they can tell that, that things are different and things are worse. So it's all over the place. Thank you for being with us today and listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We have been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find older episodes of our show on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine, and we hope that you will visit with us again next week. Cheers. Cheers.